0: Thank you very much, Kevin, for leading us here this morning and worship team. Uh, Again, Tim Rogers, lead pastor here. Welcome here in person and also those watching on Facebook Live. Glad to have you doing that. And those online later through our podcast, thank you for doing that. Uh, You found us at the second part of a series we're calling Big Questions That Shape Your World. Last week, just to catch you up to speed real quick, we started with this assumption about this entire series. Here's my assumption, that we live in a world which is telling our children and our, ourselves and our grandchildren that a, um, a way to see the world, uh, one of two ways. One is through the lens of uh, people of faith, whether that's Christianity or Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever it is, but then there's another way to see the world, and that is through what I'm going to call a secular worldview, and that is a more evidence-based world. And my assumption is our children are growing up in a world in which they feel tension and pressure to essentially move into one of those two camps, either to be someone who holds on to their worldview, if they are, let's say, a Christian, they hold on to Christianity because it's faith-based. But the pressure, it's sometimes implied, often explicit, the pressure is once you grow up a little bit, once you get a little smarter, once you see the world for what it really is, you will understand the world is better understood as evidence-based. The world is better understood scientifically and rationally. And once you have some courage to challenge your childhood beliefs that are simply based on faith alone, you will come to see the world in a more rational, logical, adult, scientific evidence-based way. And that these two worldviews will assume that Christianity and any other religion is based on faith, and secularism is based on evidence. And when you put it that way, it seems to only make sense, well, if someone is smart, they would pick the worldview that would be based on evidence. My my message last week was simply this, that that both Christianity and secularism are belief systems. They're both belief systems. And the question for me and the question for you is, which is the most robust and rational and reasonable? Rational, reasonable, the whole thing. Which is the most robust? That was my whole point last week. If you're not sure how I got there, you can listen to last week. I'm not going to review that, but the point is, I would argue that Every worldview, whether secular, Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever it is, every worldview is a mixture of faith, evidence, reason, community work, intuition. It's all a mixture put together. Now, with that being said as background, here's the question that I want to look at today, because for the next several weeks, I want to ask big questions that shape your world and shape the world of your kids and your grandkids, and shape how people see their world. And this question this morning, is it's framed up in a little bit of a, um, a morose, kind of sad, heavy way. But that's okay, I'll ask it, I'll put it out here this way, and then I'll kind of reframe it. And the question is this, if we all suffer, die, and will be forgotten... What is the meaning of life? Isn't that amazingly encouraging this morning? Doesn't that just get you excited and fired up? If we, all, if we all suffer and die and will be ultimately forgotten, what in the world is the meaning of life? And you may have not asked the question in this way before, but I bet you have asked it in this way before. I bet you just asked it this way. What is the meaning of life? Now, it could be. These questions, by the way, are so big, They're so big that few of us actually sit down and think, you know, let me write that down. What is the meaning of life? And come up with an answer to it. Sometimes they're so big that we don't even know how to get a handle on them that we think, Who cares? Let's leave that for the philosophers. Let them figure that out right now. I just got to handle today what's for lunch, right? When are the bills being paid? My kids need something, and whatever you want to think about with the meaning of life, you have a good time. I just got to live life while you're trying to figure it out. Now, I can get that, and I can appreciate that. And it's also possible that in the span of the three hours that I have to speak with you this morning— just kidding, for those who are here, guests, I'm not going to do that— In the short amount of time I have to speak with you this morning, it's possible that I can say nothing helpful because it's such a big topic, and I'm aware of that, and so I want to actually try to say something helpful to you, and I want to emphasize at the beginning the dailiness of the impact of the meaning of life. That the meaning of life, whether you ask it this way or not, you answer this question every single day with every activity that you do, the time you set your alarm clock, the activities that you engage in when you come home, the way that you orient your career, your future, your health, your finances that you are answering whether you 're asking the question or not, you are constantly not just broadly but daily answering what is the meaning of life now to help bring that home i've brought my little balloon with me this morning, hopefully you can see that and what I want to do to illustrate the point is take a couple marbles. I've got four here. I know you can't see them, and I can't show them to you too easily. But if you can imagine your life like this balloon filled with important things, and there we go, you put family in there, the value of family, you've got your career that you're trying to, you know, take off and move to the next level, and then you've got whatever else you've got going on. You've got activities, you've got your own personal health in there, and you've got, let's say, your financial future, you hope to be able to actually pay rent, you know, maybe someday. Buy a house, whatever it is, and your life is kind of like this. Now, hang on a second, see how this goes. That was cool. <laughs> a little head rush for me. All right. Now, in all of our lives, we have this, these varied priorities that drive our day, drive our week, and our season, and they kind of like in this balloon, they roll around. I don't know if you can hear that. Is that better? can hear that. They roll around in our day all the time. And so sometimes, some days we get up and we're like, man, I got a family obligation right now. Another time we got a financial obligation. Later on, I got to move forward in my career. I got to get more education. I got to pay the bills. I got to take care of the kids. And we have a variety of things that are constantly moving around within the solar system of our life, of our meaning. And we try to figure out what they are. And if you can hear it, you can hear every now and then they bash into each other, this small little click. Sometimes family bashes into career. Sometimes you can't be present because you have to be somewhere else. Sometimes things just get in conflict, and they're kind of clunky and bashing. And sometimes they, like, flow really smooth together and all roll around. That usually lasts for about 15 minutes in life, right? And then things happen, and they kind of all get smashed and moved around. And meaning in all of our lives is kind of like this. This is what I want to get to, that we all have these things that that roll around. Now, you also assume something about meaning, and this is very important to begin, that we have some assumptions about what meaning actually is that I want to identify quick. Meaning, for my definition this morning... Meaning is actually a small little math problem. It's very simple. Meaning is purpose plus significance. I want to talk about that just for a second. Meaning is purpose plus significance. So meaning, when we use the word meaning, you know, what does something mean? I want you to imagine for a minute if your children were cleaning their rooms. I'll give you a little bit. (laughs) Some things are harder to imagine than others. And you walk into their room after a few minutes, and you see in the trash a trophy in the trash, one of their trophies that they have on their shelf from whatever it might be, a soccer tournament or, you know, whatever it is. And you ask them this question, did you mean to throw your trophy in the trash? And you're using the word meaning in a very particular way. You're asking, were you purposeful in the act of putting the trophy in the trash? Was there a purpose behind that? Did you mean to do that? They might say, oh, I don't know, I guess not, it just happened to fall in the trash. And then you might say, do you know what that trophy means? It means that you were the most improved player that year. It means that the coach thought that you were the MVP. In other words, there's significance. And you're using the word meaning to represent significance. There's something that trophy represents beyond itself. And meaning for life is when purpose and significance collide. And you wake up and you're intentional in your day, but also that your day exists beyond you. That the work that you're doing represents something bigger than you. That both purpose and significance are essential for meaning in life. That's what I mean with meaning in life. When purpose and significance collide and you find yourself living a purposeful life that carries significance beyond yourself. Now, with that being said, we have a major problem in life, however. As our priorities roll around and we seek purpose and significance, this may be a bit overkill, but I didn't have anything else with me. I have a little pocket knife here. We have a major problem, though, and I'm very serious about this. We have a major problem, and that is, for all of us, there comes a time when our balloon of life meets the sharp end It meets a sharp end. And it is the problem. It is the problem of death. The fact is, we know that the things that we carry around inside of us, that we jostle for position in our daily lives and our activities, will one day come crashing to an end because we cannot hold them very long because they will at some point meet the sharp end of death. And death is a problem if you want to find meaning in life it is a big problem. In fact, in the scriptures I need to pick up the marbles or I'll trip on them. In the scriptures in the book of Ecclesiastes reading from the message version here's what the author Ecclesiastes had to say about life in light of death. It said smoke, nothing but smoke. There's nothing to anything. It's all smoke. What's there to show for a lifetime of work? A lifetime of working your fingers to the bone. One generation goes its way, the next one arrives, but nothing changes. It's business as usual for old planet Earth. The sun comes up, and the sun goes down, and then does it again and again, the same old round. The wind blows south, the wind blows north. Around and around and around it blows, blowing this way, then that, the whirling, erratic wind. And all the rivers flow into the sea, but the sea never fills up. The rivers keep flowing to the same old place, And then start all over and do it again. Everything's boring, utterly boring. No one can find any meaning in it. Boring to the eye, boring to the ear. What was will be again. What happened will happen again. And there's nothing new on this earth. Year after year, it is the same old thing. Does someone call out, hey, this is new. (laughs) Don't get excited. It's the same old story. Then they put it this way. Nobody remembers what happened yesterday. And the things that will happen tomorrow, nobody will remember them either. Don't count on being remembered. This is in the B-I-B-L-E. Death is a problem for anyone who wants to find meaning in life. In fact, there was a British philosopher, Bertrand Russell, he put it this way. When he considered the meaning of life relative to death, he said this way that all of human love, labor, and genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. It resulted for him in this unyielding despair of the soul. There's another thinker, uh, philosopher Thomas Nagel, he put it this way. He said this, "Even even if you produce a great work of literature which continues to be read thousands of years from now, Eventually, the solar system will cool, or the universe will wind down and collapse, and all trace of your effort will vanish. It wouldn't matter if you had never existed. And after you have gone out of existence, it won't matter that you did exist. And isn't that uncomfortable? And aren't you glad that you are here this morning? We had this conversation around our kitchen table, around our kitchen here this week. And I will tell you, it is an uncomfortable conversation to have because I don't want it to be true and I don't think you do either. And yet the logic of it we cannot deny. And I want to pause in the hardness and the awkwardness of this moment and say if you want to find meaning in life, you have got to stare down and answer for death. Because if you don't, Your life will be like a balloon that rattles these things around and rolls them around, but you will be busy, but you will not find meaning. You will not find purpose, and you will not find significance if you do not have an answer to the darkness of death. In fact, even Tim Keller, Christian leader, author, wrote the book Making Sense of God, in which many of my thoughts are framed for this series. I told you that last week. Even he put it this way. He said this, Ultimately, everything we do is radically insignificant. Nothing counts forever. Isn't that awesome? Do so we have to ask this question, and I want you to be in the space of the pain of this for a minute because it is absolutely true. This is true, but there is more to it. We have to ask this question. If this is true, and we face an unyielding enemy that makes our lives meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, We have to ask the question, what can we do? What can we do? And you answer it one way, and people answer it another way, and both the secularist and the Christian answer it in different ways. Here's how many people answer it, and here's the beginning. Most people answer it this way. We ignore it. It's as simple as that. It is as simple as that. That was the instinct in our home this week. And isn't that the instinct in your heart? Like, what? What? Like, that's a pretty depressing thing, man. Like, have you warned people who are struggling, like, with their own identity before you talk about this? Because this could be a real downer, you know? I mean, seriously, like, this is, if you actually take, can you move on quickly to the next thing? Can you lift us up a little bit? Because this is a real heavy wet blanket. Like, can we move on to something else? In other words, can I be busy enough to distract myself so I don't have to think about the logic of what you just said? Isn't that instinctive in us? It was the old uh, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes back in the early 1900s. He wrote to one of his friends, and he said, when I stop to think about the fact that there is essentially a grain of sand and a baboon have no difference of value in this world. He said, when I stop to think about that, (laughs) here's what he does. Here's his approach. This This is awesome. You know what I do? I go downstairs and play solitaire. That is true. That's true. We ignore it. We just ignore it. We do. We are not comfortable with this place of death. We are not comfortable with the knife point of death coming and ruining everything that you work and I work so hard for. It has too much meaning to us to have it be threatened by this thoughtless enemy of death. And yet, this is why I think in the book of Ecclesiastes, the author says, it's better to enter and be in the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Why? Because death centers you up to something that joy in life simply doesn't. It centers you up to something. It makes you rethink. And so we ignore it. And I would say most people do that. We busy ourselves with all kinds of things. And goodness, aren't we busy enough? Families, bills, education, school, careers. I mean, we're busy enough. So we, we busy ourselves. So there's one approach is to simply ignore the fact that everything is meaningless and that in thousands of years, everything will cool and no one will remember that I'm here. Even if I do a great work, no one will remember. It'll be ultimately insignificant. To That's too much. I got to take care of Sunday and Monday. Got to move on. The other approach is this. If you can't ignore it, create it. That is, create a meaning for your life. This is what um, Harvard professor Stephen uh, Gould had to say about this. He he put it this way. He said, these thoughts are are superficially troubling, if not terrifying, but ultimately liberating. We must construct these answers for ourselves. And doesn't that actually sound good? Like, this is kind of terrifying when I think that all of my life and my work for him at Harvard and getting there and teaching and leading our nation in so many good ways, like, it doesn't mean anything. That's terrifying. But wait, wait. Wait. If it doesn't mean anything, you know what I can do? I can create meaning for myself. And that is the approach of secularism, to say, you know what, why don't I create it? And that actually sounds really good. So in other words, why don't you be the best mom that you can be? Why don't you be the best dad that you can be? Why don't you enter into your career and reach the top of that field? Why don't you be the best student right now, the best athlete right now? Why don't you be the best musician that you can be? Why don't you find something? Find something to do that calls for your heart and passion and soul and connect to it and give it everything you have in this life. That is liberating. But then I have to ask this question. Can you impose meaning on life? Can you impose ultimate meaning on life? What if I want to marry somebody who doesn't want to marry me? What if I now, physically now, as a 42-year-old, excuse me, a 35-year-old, wanted to play in the NFL now with my incredible physique and speed? Can I impose that meaning on life? Can I just impose that and say, I'm going to do that? I can create a meaning, but can I really? Can, do we really have the power to create the meaning that we want in this world? Or can we just create lesser meanings? Can we create distractions? Can we create things that maybe don't quite hold the weight that maybe they should? And so there's some problems with created meaning. I just want to identify three. When you create meaning, and this is what many of us do, when we create meaning... First of all, created meaning cannot endure true suffering. If you ever had a, a kid who's played a sport or you yourself have done that and that sport has become so important for them and they, they ruin, they have a health problem, all of a sudden they can't play anymore. You understand the narrative. It's like, oh, what am I going to do? This is so important to me now. I can't do it. In other words, I've endured some level of suffering. The thing that was most important to me is now taken from me. What do I do? Extrapolate that out times a thousand. You have uh, parents who lose children. You have people who die, as we would call it, early of diseases that we don't think they should die from. We have people who betray one another, who struggle. We have death camps in our world. We have people who are pushed out of their countries through no interest of their own, forced into a refugee lifestyle, never see their family for long periods of time, and may never see them again. And I'm going to ask you, where is created meaning in life for them? And when you locate meaning within this world, suffering will indeed strip it away. Victor Frankl wrote about his experience in the death camps in Germany when Hitler was in power. And he talked about the people who would come in, the lawyers, the physicians, the doctors who would come in. Their family was stripped from them. Their clothing was taken. Their material possessions were gone. They had nothing left of their identity, their background. The things that gave them meaning were stripped from them. And those who had created meaning, those who had created meaning based on what they could accomplish, who, what they could be, struggled deeply and were broken broken people created meaning cannot endure the worst suffering this world brings to you it simply cannot because created meaning is located within this world and so when this world strips it all away we are lost it is too shallow created meaning is also here's the problem it's very individualistic created meaning says this <laughs> let me go back to meaning for a minute meaning is purpose and significance together right That I'm intending to do something and the thing that I'm doing takes me further than myself. It pushes me further than myself. Created meaning says this, I'm going to create my meaning. I'm going to be the one to create my meaning. But the problem is, how can you as an individual ever create meaning that you are sure extends beyond yourself? Here's what I mean by that. Imagine a benevolent person for a minute. Someone who sees a needy family in our community and says, you know what? I think they need a thousand dollars. I'm gonna go ahead and give that to them. That they find meaning in being benevolent. What is driving the benevolence? One would hope, one would hope that it is sheer lack of self-interest, that it's just caring for someone in need. But how can we not deny, how can we not deny that if we say it as well, it is better to give than receive? How can we not deny that there's also sometimes self-interest in being benevolent? If I find meaning in giving to you, I am finding my meaning in the act of giving to you, that I'm actually doing for myself the very thing that I need. Unless you are someone who needs my help, I have lost my meaning entirely. How can we not deny this struggle? If I'm the one to create my own meaning, then my meaning is very individualistic, and it doesn't extend beyond myself. It's just about me. Therefore, my career is an extension of my fulfillment. Even if my career is about helping you, it's actually about helping me. It's very individualistic. The problem with created meaning, thirdly, is this, that our our created meanings conflict with one another. In other words, let's put it this way. If your created meaning is, I want to help the poor, I want to build wells in Africa, I want to help children who are in need, I want to help the poor, but my created meaning is, I want to get as wealthy as I can. And I don't really care about the poor, and I don't care about wells in Africa. Now, who are you to tell me that my created meaning is wrong? Why is yours more noble than mine? If death is going to eliminate us all, why is it more noble to help the poor than to make money off of their backs? Our created meanings conflict with one another. We have a world in which there's created meaning upon created meaning upon created meaning, and we're looking at one another and saying, why can't we get along? And our created meanings run into each other, and we have a real problem. Now, so I want to ask this question about meaning. What if, what if, what if meaning could be discovered? Not created, but discovered. What if meaning exists as a thing? What if it could be found? What if it could be discovered? What if discovered meaning is so much more powerful than created meaning? Let me give you this illustration, and the name of the person in the story will remain nameless, maybe. <clears throat> but he might be a pastor on staff and might play guitar sometimes, but I'm not going to share any names. So let's say there was someone driving to my house one time during the Christmas season, um, Yeah, he might have been playing up here this morning, actually, I can't remember. (laughs) We have a neighbor, and we love our neighbors, Uh, we have a neighbor who um, has a pond and does a great job with Christmas decorations, and if you ever come by our house, um, you'll see that what they have, he has kind of a, almost a four-foot... Tall, you know, whatever, four by three, I don't know what it is, but very large letters right behind his pond that are lit up, I think this year, in purple, and they, they spell M O N I C A, the name of a, of a girl, Monica, okay? Monica in big letters, so it extends over, you can't miss it. It's, it's a large thing, kind of like the Hollywood sign, except it's Monica, okay? Now, when, let's say, the anonymous people are driving to our house, they come into the house and they drive by Monica, and let's just say the thought was, you know, what kind of a person is so desperate for a date with Monica that they would put that out there? Or other people, other people have said, you know, similar things of that. Did they just break up with Monica and hoping to get back with Monica again? In other words, they look at the the, the big Monica and they're like, what does it mean? And they create meaning it. Now, when I say, and I usually let the conversation go a little bit to the right time, and then I say, well, Monica was their special needs daughter who died a few years ago from a grand mal seizure. And then they feel terrible. I only do that to my best friends. <laughs> Discovered meaning is so much more powerful than created meaning. You can assign a meaning to Monica and might even judge the person who puts that sign out. But what if you discover that there is a meaning to it? Is it not so much more powerful? And can it not endure? And what if life were like that? Because for the Christian, life is like that. The Christian's answer to meaning in life isn't about creating meaning or ignoring it. The Christian's answer is we believe, Christians believe, that meaning can be discovered. That God actually created a world in which people live. And the people who live in that world have fallen into sin and struggles. That God, in his infinite love as creator, looked down on the people whom he made and said, I want to come redeem you. I want to come find you and buy you back, if you will that I've created you for something. And so what he did is he had this move of sending his son, Jesus Christ, to the planet. And Jesus comes to the planet, and he ends up on the cross, and as he's on the cross, he, he says these words. He says in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that space, sorry, I dropped a marble. No comments about losing my marbles. (laughs) In that space, you know what Jesus is doing? He's staring down death. Is he? He's on the cross, and he's looking at the despair of death, and he's taking his little balloon of life and all the things that are in it, and whether it's his aspirations, dreams, or goals, whatever you might be, and there we go and he's entering a darkness that we will all face. He's entering into the space that is inevitable for you and is inevitable for me. And Jesus enters into this little space and he cries out to God. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you put me in a spot where I'm facing the knife point of death, if you will, with all the things you know, that could have been So in this space, (laughs) my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus comes and he's like, you know what, I'm going to, what if I have an answer for death? What if my answer for death is different? What if there's a way to take the very things that ruin us, the very kind of knife point of death, and change it? Wow, this is working well. I will get it. Should have had uh, someone mute my mic for a minute. Let's see, one more time. That may be the best I can do. But what if in the middle of it all, let me get my, this is dangerous. What if in the middle of it all, when when Jesus, trust me, kind of, when Jesus comes to the the night point of death and he says, the end of my life, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he dies, something different happens for him than happens for us. That the things that have been a part of his life, the things that that have kind of created Both activity and meaning for him are different than us. And and when he comes to the knife point of death, something changes. Something changes. And what changes is he doesn't lose all the things that he was actively engaged in. He doesn't lose, if you will, the things that he put his life into. They just are not there. And why? Because for Jesus, when he engages life and he engages the things that are active for him, what he's doing, as he, and this is what I want for you, as he is going through meeting the people he meets, touching the people whom he touches, engaging the sick, caring for the poor, being incredibly active in love and care for your neighbor, which I want for you. I want your business to be like that. I want you to be like that in school. I want you to be like that in your career. I want you to be fully present in the town square, if you will, caring tangibly for people because I think there is meaning. But I think the meaning is discovered. And I think the meaning is that Jesus has come and said, I have come. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And he has come so that all of the activities in life are not centered up just in this world, but are a result of his relationship with the Father. That the Heavenly Father said, and as Jesus said, he said, my food is to do the will of the Father who has sent me. That he's locating meaning outside of life. And so every opportunity you have to touch your children or to engage your neighbor to care for them is actually an extension of the love of God It's an extension of the care and mercy of God it's an extension of the forgiveness and mercy of the gospel so that when you lead your business and care for the people that you care for it is an extension of that kind of work so for the Christian for the Christian Christians don't believe in ignoring nor creating meaning why because it's not rational enough It's not rational enough. It doesn't make enough sense. Christians don't believe in what they believe because they're irrational, but I believe because they're thinking deeply about their faith, and they anchor their meaning to something beyond this world. So Christians Christians, believe in the meaning who came to discover us. Christians believe in that, and they will anchor their hope to a God and a Father outside of this world who says, while you are here, yes, engage the poor. Please love your neighbor. Please raise your children with intentionality and care. But make no mistake, those things are not your meaning. They're an expression of how your meaning is anchored to me as your God and Heavenly Father. And they are a way for you to love your co-workers. They're a way for you to love the people well that you serve. For the Christian, that is how we can have meaning that endures pain, suffering, and even death to anchor our meaning to something beyond this world, someone who came and invaded our space to give us meaning so that everything we do, everything we do is an extension of the love and the grace and the mercy of our Heavenly Father. And so as you go to work this week, as you raise your children this week, as you go to school, as you lead in your businesses, I want you to do it incredibly well. I want you to do it with incredible care and love for the people around you. Recognizing that your work is an expression of meaning that is located outside of this world. And so if it is all taken away from you, your kids are crazy this week and work is ridiculous and people are critical of you and nothing goes right. It's not your meaning in the first place. Your Heavenly Father came to redeem you through Jesus Christ. And that is what Christians believe about meaning in life and where it is located. And so love well, anchored to our Heavenly Father. Next week, I want to talk about another question and see how we can find significance in this life. And so we'll talk about that next week. Look forward to that. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to be together this morning and to kind of stop and consider meaning in life such a big topic and sometimes so 30,000 foot that doesn't even register with us but I do pray for us that we would be we would be people who think reasonably about our own meaning and anchor it to the right place so that when adversity, pain and suffering comes when career disappointment comes when health crises come We're not just distracted by the things that we have created our life to be, but that we are strengthened and drawn closer to a Heavenly Father who has come to infuse this life with meaning, to discover that we indeed are made by a Heavenly Father. We are loved by a Heavenly Father. We are redeemed by His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is a meaning that endures suffering, pain, and death of this world. And so, Father, we love you so much. We thank you for the redemption of your Son coming to this world, and I pray that you would help each of us to anchor our meaning to your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in him that we pray. Amen.